My name is Robert Svoboda. I uh, am originally from Texas. In 1972, I took a Bachelor of Science degree at the University of Oklahoma. And in 1974, I enrolled in the Tilak Ayurved Mahavid in Pune. In 1980, I graduated with a BAMS Ayurved Acharya degree. And since 1980, I've been traveling around the world talking to people about Ayurveda. I think I would have to describe it in two different ways. One, the first is the traditional way that it's described by Charakacharya, the Ayurveda's most eminent author. Hitahitam sukham dukham ayustase hitahitam manancha tatcha yatroktam ayurveda suichete. So, hita in Sanskrit means that which is beneficial. So, Charak is looking for that which is beneficial and not beneficial for understanding what is good and what is not good for health and ill health in an individual, for happiness and unhappiness, happiness being the health of the mind, and for understanding the nature of the lifespan and of the span of diseases and conditions that occur in the body. That's basically what Ayurveda is. Everything that has to do with life in an embodied being, not only human beings, but also animals. There's elephant Ayurveda, there's horse Ayurveda. For example, in South India, there is still, uh, there is, there is still a clinic where you know, in South India, elephants are used in temples, and they're used for logging. So if your elephant is unwell, you send him the, to the elephant clinic, where perhaps he will get massaged and be given a different diet, maybe even given an enema. And then when he's all better, then he goes back to wherever he came from. How is the, the plant? The plant Ayurveda is used um, specifically for people who are trying to grow uh, better quality plants, to, to grow unusual plants. So, for example, if you have a mango tree that you want to that you want to develop new qualities in, Ayurveda is a qualitative medical system. It's interested not so much in the quantity of things, like how many beats a minute your pulse goes, but what is the quality of your pulse? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it thready? Is it full? Is it empty? Is it weak? So, in the same way, we want the quality of the mango. We don't really care how much ash there is in the mango if you incinerate it, or what percentage of, of uh, 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 water there is in the flesh of the mango, we're interested in what sort of juice it provides to the organism, what kind of taste you get when you eat the mango. Well, I think the first tip would be to, to go to someone who has been well-trained. There basically are two ways to be well-trained in Ayurveda. One is to have a, a teacher with whom you have uh, apprenticed for a number of years. Learning Ayurveda for a weekend or a month or two is not sufficient to, to gain enough knowledge of the system that is as complex as this one is to be able to use it properly. So someone preferably who has been trained and has a degree from an institution of higher education in Ayurveda in India or Bangladesh or Sri Lanka or Mauritius, the countries where Ayurveda currently is taught, or someone who has uh, licensed in another healing modality who has studied an extensive period of time uh, in, in Ayurveda. The second thing you'd want to make sure of is what sort of herbs the individual is offering you. 
because uh, India is like anywhere else. You can get herbs that are of good quality. You can get herbs that have been contaminated, the bacteria with heavy metals and things like that. So you, you want uh, some sort of guarantee that the herbs at least have been examined by when, when they've been uh, imported so that their, their quality is of some value. And then you want to make sure that not only is the person well-trained and not only are the herbs good, but that the herbs that you personally get are ones that you will be able to interact with well. Just because something is theoretically good, just because ginseng is good, or ginkgo is good, or in the context of Ayurvedic herbs, trifala is good, ashwagandha is good, doesn't mean that it will be good for you. So you need to go to someone who is aware of the kind of things that are good for you as an individual and to make sure that you get the right thing in the right amount in order to make you get back into balance, which is what Ayurveda is all about. Ayurveda is basically, it's almost kind of like a, met, a meta-medical system, like you have paradigms and meta-paradigms. Ayurveda is a meta-medical system in the sense that it teaches you what to do, when, and how. So we, everything by definition, by definition of Chadak, this ancient Ayurvedic writer, everything in the world can be used as a medicine. Thought can be used as medicine. Flowers can be used as medicine. Television can be used as medicine. Or it can be food or it can be poison. Unfortunately, a lot of the television we see nowadays is poison. It's making people much more imbalanced than it is making balance. But it could be used for in, in quite a different way and, give, and, and could to produce quite different effects if it was engineered in the right way. So in Ayurveda, we're very much interested in understanding the individual and knowing, is rolfing good for this person now, or should we giving them, be giving them nice, calm, soothing massage? Is it time for this person to purify, or should they be rebuilding so that their system is strong enough so, in fact, that when they do purify, they won't become further imbalanced? Ideally, we would like for everybody to go out and collect them themselves. Certain things, however, may only be available in India. We'd like very much for people to grow things themselves. But supposing you want to give them amalaki, which is one of the ingredients in trifala and is in the main ingredient in the famous Ayurvedic jam, chavanaprash. Well, first of all, amalaki will only grow where it doesn't freeze. So then you have to move to a place where it doesn't freeze. And then it will take 10 years for the amalaki to grow. So the disease is happening today and you say, well, come back 11 years from now and you'll be able to get your, your treatment. It's not practical. So either, although we would like very much to have people going out and collecting things themselves, it, it is more appropriate to be providing them things that they can use in a way that will be beneficial to them now. And, and very much we're interested in people learning the qualities of the herbs that are present in the place where they live and making use of, use of those herbs as much as possible. But certain things are unique. They have qualities that are, that are not necessarily translatable into local things like ginseng, like ashwagandha, like licorice root. Those are things that are, have been uh, in Chinese medicine, in Ayurvedic medicine, in Western herbalism. The, the value of licorice has been has been acknowledged for many hundreds of years, but that doesn't mean that licorice will grow everywhere. It does mean, though, that for certain conditions, it may be the right thing to use. But certainly, we believe that it is very beneficial to have people using herbs that grow in the place where they come from and that, that grow in the kind of climate that they live in. 
But in order to use them properly, they need to be able to, dis to, to examine, to evaluate the herb according to the rasa, its taste, the virya, its energy, the vipak, its post-digestive effect, and the prabhava, the special quality that it has. So if you look in Western herbology, most of the herbs are, are classified according to prabhava. So uh, hipsisawa, for example, uva ursi, we know that it acts as a diuretic. But is it, is it a hot diuretic or is it a cool diuretic? Does it have a, an extreme drying effect on the body or just a mild drying effect? So unless we know these other qualities, it's, it's not to our benefit to try to use it in an Ayurvedic way because to use it Ayurvedically, it's not, it's not enough just to use a bottle of pills that you've obtained from India. You have to know what sort of pill should be given to the person when, in which way, in order to get the result. There are, but there are also many, uh, many herbs that are used in India that are present here in the United States also. For example, aloe vera, probably 70,000 acres of aloe vera growing down in my home state of Texas. Aloe vera is used in India in a wide variety of different ways, particularly for the eyes, the skin, the liver. And uh, so as with, with licorice root, which is used in India as well as over here, as with many of the spices that we eat, fennel, cumin, coriander, all of these are used in India as medicines as well as as foods. But there are a number of things like this ashwagandha, which is a small root that grows in uh, generally in cool climates that's very good for causing the nervous system to become calm and very, very, very safe. Its lethal dose is extremely high. So ashwagandha is something that even though it is, it is native to India, now it is beginning to be grown organically here in the United States. So it, it is in the process of being naturalized to this country. So at some point, ashwagandha that is available here will become very available for people to use and get benefit from, particularly those people who have vata constitutions and vata imbalances. Well, I, I think they're, they're both very similar in the sense that, they, that we prefer to use whole or extracted herbs instead of active principles. You know, the, the pharmaceutical companies look for active principles, things they can extract individually out of the thing and use uh, out of the context that nature put it in. But we believe that nature put it into that context for a good reason. And so that it is, we, we prefer to use an extract of the entire thing, or at, at the very, at the, at the most, uh, an, uh, extracting it or preparing it in such a way that it enhances one of its qualities, but retains all, all of its natural um, ingredients. So I think, generally speaking, in that way, we are very, our philosophy is very similar to that of Western herbalism, who also prefers to take things in as crude a form as possible. Sometimes we don't use it in, in as that crude a form. We like to ferment them into medicinal wines and boil them into uh, medicated oils because the, those, those methods are more effective for getting them into the body and, and getting them extended into uh, the deepest part of the tissues, whereas something that is just a crude powder may not be assimilated all that well. 
as my mentor used to say, uh, it's not what you eat, it's what you digest that counts, but out of what you digest, it's what you assimilate that counts, and out of what you assimilate, really, it's what you utilize that counts. It doesn't even matter if it gets to be assimilated, it has to be used by your organism. The, the, the way of looking at the, at the, at the, the client is often different. Uh, the word darshan in Sanskrit means both philosophy and sight. So in, in India, we believe that your philosophy is your sight, the way you look at the world. So it's very common for, it's very common for uh, Western herbalists to think in terms of what does the herb actually do? Is it a diuretic? Is it a thing that promotes, is it a tonic? Is it a thing that promotes uh, enhanced uh, uh, nutrition to the cells of the body? And we like to think about those actions too, but we also think about them in the context of the rasa, the taste, the virya, the energy, and the vipak, the post-digestive effect. So even though there are things that are laxatives, we like to classify them according to whether they are sweet laxatives, sour laxatives, bitter, pungent, astringent, or salty laxatives. So we can have laxatives of all different six tastes. And generally, it is obvious when we examine the individual or client, which of those tastes is the thing they need best. You know, Ayurveda is probably the only medical system that has, as a disease category, lack of taste, improper taste, taste that is misplaced taste. So taste as a category of health and, and morbidity, health and pathology, is something that's very central to and possibly unique to Ayurveda. In almost any way that you can get it into your system, uh, so as uh, powder, as expressed juice, as a pulvis, a pulverized kind of paste, as a decoction, a, a cold infusion, a hot infusion, medicated oil, medicated wine, uh, combined with other herbs into pills, the, combined with metals into composite medicines, applied to the skin, applied to the nose as enema, uh, into the ears and the eyes, all different orifices, all different forms applied to the body in every way you can think of. Sometimes uh, used, uh, but offered into uh, the sacred fire and the ash is used in a potentiated form. Sometimes used with the help of a mantra that you apply to the herb and then administer to someone. Sometimes used radionically, you use the, you take the herb here, apply some mantras to it and send its effect to somebody at a distance. So we accept everything. Our philosophy is everything is possible as a medicine. We can do everything that we want to, but it has to be appropriate, judicious, in the context of the person that we're trying to deal with. All sorts of different types of minerals, all sorts of different types of animal preparations, and of course things that are not really physical. Uh, aromatherapy, uh, emotional therapy, visualization, uh, y yantras, forms of, uh, of, of deities, anything that you can think of, we make use of. You mentioned uh, crystals before. Yes, so we use crystals both in the form of, uh, for example, uh, sometimes uh, some people take crystals and uh, put them in alcohol and succust them daily and keep them there for two weeks or four weeks and then use that alcohol as a sort of a homeopathic eau de crystal. Essence, essence of the crystal. Sometimes uh, we use the crystal, we wear them. 
like use gemstones, wear the gemstone in order to get the effect of the vibration and the ray of the gemstone. Sometimes we use those crystal, we worship those crystals, and then, for example, we might take the crystal and bathe it in milk or water or honey water or something else, and then with the help of mantras, and then consume that water that the thing has been bathed with and get the result that way. Western medicine really does not have much of a darshan, does not have much of a philosophy. It has the philosophy of everything that's, that doesn't belong in the system we should remove, which we agree with. But it has a philosophy of disease. It has a very effective philosophy of trauma and trauma, you know, initial trauma care. And, and very, it's very effective in terms of surgery and crisis. But we would like to think that life doesn't have to be a continuous crisis. And we don't really see in Western medicine a philosophy of health. We do see wellness and well-being as in the absence of disease, but this idea of exactly what does health mean and how can you develop a momentum for health. And once you have that momentum for health, how can you enhance it and how can, how can you make it contagious so that other people in your neighborhood will also catch the disease of health, or we should say the ease of health. So how can Ayurveda be beneficial to people who are trained in Western medicine? Well, it can give them a, it can give them a way of seeing the world. It can give them a way of understanding why some of their patients respond very well to a certain medicine and why some of them have terrible side effects from that very same medicine. It can help them understand why some of their people, especially the Vata people who are tall and thin, should not be out running marathons and should not be out pounding the pavement and, and damaging their joints. It will help them understand why those people are doing that and what, what can be done to encourage the client to do something that will not be so, that will achieve the goals that the client wants but not be so detrimental to the physical body. It will help them understand why Pitta people love to drink coffee all day long and why that's the worst possible thing for them to be doing. It helps them to understand why the Kapha person needs so much prodding to actually get up and move around and why that prodding has to be consistently performed because the Kapha person has to move around in order to be healthy. So it gives a perspective on specific varieties of health and disease and it also in it, it, it has the potential at least for those Western physicians who are really interested in making their clients healthier it has the potential to to give them the kind of perspective that they can use to help the client develop a personal life story people need life stories we find we've we've that's why we find people let's say dressing up in Star Trek outfits and wandering around in the street. They're looking for some kind of self-definition. The sort of life that we live nowadays is one in which the only kind of self-definition you have is from th things that, that other people are, are attaching to you. We, we've lost a, an immense amount of what was the culture that, that, we, that we grew up in even 30 or 40 years ago. And people are looking for some way of understanding who they are, where they belong, and they're going to very great extremes in order to try to find some sort of meaning in life. So all we're saying in Ayurveda is you don't have to go to such great extremes. You don't have to become completely fanatic about things that are extremely bizarre. You can, you can find, you can, you can begin by trying to understand the way that your body differs from other people's bodies, and you can proceed to understand the way that your mind differs from other people's minds, 
and you can develop that into an understanding of your own individuality and how you can enhance that individuality healthily and how you can develop a kind of relationship between you and the external environment, between you and other people, between you and the spirit, you and the Godhead, that will make you a really healthy person and can enhance the health of the people and the society around you. Uh, it's, it's not entirely clear to me. I do remember that in 1974, February, I had just met Dr. Ladd in Pune. I was about to, I had to come back to the USA to get a visa to study. And my parents were living in Chicago at the time. And so I thought, well, I'll go down to the American Medical Association. I'm sure they will have a lot of information about Ayurveda that they can, they can tell me. And I went in and, and I said, what can you tell me about Ayurveda, the ancient medical system of India? And they said, well, the guy said, I'll, I'll ask. And he was gone for 15 or 20 minutes. And he came back and said, you know, nobody knows anything about that here. We think it's some kind of tribal medicine, but we're not really sure. He said, thank you very much for your time. Goodbye. That was 1974. I have reason to believe that probably there are more people in the a AMA and more people in the FDA who are aware of Ayurveda now. But I think it's probably still true that they believe it's some sort of tribal medicine or some sort of Indian rope trick or some sort of uh, uh, some sort of wool that is going to be pulled over the eyes of the gullible public. So the FDA, I think, at this stage is still very much in functioning in, in a very mechanistic kind of paradigm, a paradigm of uh, because of the way science has developed over the past 50 or 100 years is we need to think in terms of LD50s and we need to think in terms of uh, 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 active principles and we need to think in terms of controlled double-blind studies. So w without understanding, you know, the, the extent to which the placebo effect and the and its opposite work uh, in terms of health and disease. So in Ayurveda, we're interested mainly in people becoming healthy. I, I in fact, do have quite a lot of uh, uh, contact with MDs and uh, experience a wide variety of different um, uh, responses from them in terms of complementary medicine. Most of the ones who talk to me are ones who are interested in complementary medicine. And most of the ones who, fortunately, I and my family have uh, connection with who are not uh, interested or don't have an already established interest in complementary medicine are already open-minded about it. Because they're looking, they realize that, that, that they can't do everything they would like to for their patients. And I'm convinced that most MDs are like most other healthcare professionals. They, re they really want to do something to help the people who come to them get well. But I think there's still, from what I hear, there's still in the, in, the, in the establishment of medicine, in the organization of how medicine is taught, the people who are in charge in the hospitals and the medical schools and so on, there is still a very, um, there still seems to be a very, uh, a great sort of resistance to anything that smacks of quackism. There is a doctor of Chinese origin who recently has put up quite a lot of money of his own in Vancouver, British Columbia, to develop 
in the context of Vancouver Hospital, which is Vancouver General, which is the biggest hospital in Vancouver, uh, an institute in which Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and uh, native medicine, the natives in, in British Columbia, and all sorts of other different modalities can be used. And there are a number of physicians who are interested in this. I go to Vancouver frequently, which is why I know this. But there is, a, there is also a sizable chunk who are very vocally opposed to it, who believe that it's something that's completely, that only mechanistic medicine is valid and everything else is completely uh, hoodoo, voodoo, and mumbo-jumbo. So there's still a way to go. What would be some examples of some herbal remedies? Like two or three? If, I suppose that if we had to come up with the quintessential Ayurvedic remedy, it would have to be, if we discounted water, for example, it would have to be trifala. Trifala, three means three, and pala means fruit. So trifala means the three fruits. Um, and these are three fruits that basically are found in the jungle. Even today, only one of them is really cultivated to a great extent. Um, and these three fruits are ground down and usually used in the form of a powder. And they're sort of like Ayurveda's panacea. They, you can wash your hair with it, your body, nose drops, ear drops, eye drops, gargle with it, brush your teeth with it, good if you need to for therapeutic vomiting, laxation, enemas, anything that you can do with any other herb you can do with trifala. It helps to cleanse the body of toxins that don't belong there. It helps to rejuvenate whatever, whatever uh, surfaces it touches. And it's very mild. No one ever reacts to trifala as in and out of trifala. Sometimes what will happen is if a person is very imbalanced, the trifala will cause them maybe a, a temporary skin rash or something. But as soon as that initial purification experience is over, Trifala and the individual develop a very healthy relationship together. Another very interesting herb is Shatavari, which is the root of a type of asparagus plant. Not the, the asparagus that we eat, but its cousin. And Shatavari is very useful for adding juice to the system. So pregnant women who or women who are nursing who need to have more milk, shatavati is very good for. People who have become very dried on the inside who need to have more juice in their lives, shatavati is very useful for. Um, uh, neem is another very popular herb. Neem became very popular in the USA last year when people found out what a good insecticide it was. But it's also useful for internal and external purposes. Externally, uh, in the form of uh, medicated oil, especially for itches and chronic skin diseases, and internally for the liver and the spleen and for calming down pitta, the heat in the system. Uh, we use uh, probably all of the spices that appear on your spice rack in Ayurvedic ways. Turmeric, for example, is a good blood purifier. Cumin seed is very good for improving the digestive power in the digestive tract. Coriander is very good for calming down pitta, especially for purifying the kidneys. Um, we have cardamom, which is very useful for the lungs and for coughs and colds and things like that, and also for encouraging the agni, the digestive fire, to become strong. Clove is beneficial for similar things. Nutmeg is very good for people who have chronic diarrhea, and not only diarrhea, but uh, malabsorption syndromes.
Well, uh, what I see happening right now is that Ayurveda is becoming a fad. This is the, uh, the American way, you see. Make a thing a fad, commercialize it, extract everything you can from it, and then drop it and find the next fad. So there's very much a fad going on in Ayurveda. People learn the three words, vata, pitta, and kapha. They attend a weekend seminar. Suddenly, they're experts. They're writing books. They're giving interviews. They're advising people what to do. So this is what I see happening here. But what I would like to see is, you see, we, we like to think of Ayurveda as an actual living being, just like Ayurveda treats living beings, we like to think of the knowledge of Ayurveda also as a living being. So we like to think of it as having spread some of its seeds over here. So we'd like to see these seeds developing, not like weeds, but developing into trees. So people actually take on this darshan, this philosophy, this way of looking at life, and really start to use it in their own life, and really start to use it in the lives of, uh, of the people around them and then really start to experiment with some of their own herbs and with our Indian herbs and really try to start to see exactly how can we use these things to, um, to, to develop uh, a better awareness of what's going on with, with us and a better awareness of what's going on uh, with other people. There's an ancient Ayurvedic principle that says, Upeksha eva peshaja that sometimes the best medicine is masterly inactivity. So one precaution is the same precaution that you should have when you go to any other kind of therapist, that the therapist should not be over-treating you, should not be throwing pills or, or setting up a, tree, you know, a schedule of, okay, we'll do you know, 20 massages and 30 colonics over the next period of time. So definitely you don't want to be made a project of by your therapist, what, no matter what kind of letters appear after his or her name. So. What you're interested in is, if at all possible, the minimum amount of intervention with the system, because the nature of the nature of life is that everything that you take into yourself, whether it's with your mouth or your eyes or your ears or wherever, these things all act as stresses. They may be good, they may be bad, but your system has to adapt to them. So the less you have to adapt, the better it is, the better you become able to adapt. If you're always having to take handfuls of pills and things, your, your system is going to become, at the very least, dependent on the pills. It's never going to be able to find out where inside itself is that vitality that it requires in order to be really healthy. So one thing you want to be wary of is people who load you up with things without understanding what they're... You want to go to someone who, who understands the nature of how your life is moving. And I read we use the word gati, G-A-T-I which is almost the same, it comes from the same root as the word gait, G-A-I-T. So you can have, like with horses, you have canter, you have gallops, they are all examples of gaits. So you want to understand the gait of the individual. What speed are they moving through life at? Should they be moving slower? Should they moving, be moving faster? Should they be stopping to smell the flowers? Should they be stop smelling the flowers and start galloping, like the cup of person should? So we're interested in... in, in in, in sending people to therapists who can understand how the individual is working, not just are they a liver or are they a spleen, or not just in the, in the case of like, you know, so-called new age therapists, do they have candida or do they have some kind of other <clears throat> sexy diagnosis, you know, that will enable somebody to, to, to convince them that they should go in a certain way instead of understanding for themselves who they are and what way they should go in. We're interested in educating people. We're interested in giving people the tools that they need to take responsibility for themselves 
take advantage, you know, take the advantage of healers, but take your own responsibility. Use the healer, use the, the, the food, use the, the herb as an adjunct, as something that, that, that is, is assisting you to become healthier. Don't become addicted to it. The world we live in is a world of addiction. People are addicted to everything. What we're interested in is trying to, uh, some things you're going to be addicted to anyway. Food, water, air. But that doesn't mean you should be addicted to everything in your life. Minimize your addictions, ma and when you do that, you can maximize your quality of life because you're maximizing your, the field in which you can operate. The way the BP Nanal, who was Dr. Lod's teacher and my teacher also at the Tilak College, um, is a very, probably Pune's most eminent Ayurvedic physician. And for many years now, he has acted as a consultant to the Tata Cancer Hospital in Bombay, the biggest cancer hospital in Bombay. And, uh, you know, ordinarily they send people that they have already treated with radiation or chemotherapy uh, to wait the anonymous for follow-up treatment. Because they say, look, we can, you know, minimize the cancer, but we need you in order to make the person healthy again. And often they will send people that they don't know how to treat. They, without it doing any kind of treatment, they'll say, you just play, we don't know what to do about this. And one of the very doctors from our college, Wade Agate, uh, the professor of anatomy, that was sent away from the um, hospital with leukemia, they said, look, you'll, you have a week, maybe you have two weeks. Go get your affairs in order. And he's still alive. Three or four or five years have gone by now. So that doesn't mean that Ayurveda has a cure for every kind of malignancy. We don't think of cancer as one disease. We think of it as a condition in which the ahankar, the eye-forming principle in the body, has become very weak and unable to tell what belongs to it and what doesn't belong to it. Well, if we take rothing, for example, which is a very intrusive, I don't know if you've ever been roth, but it's a, quite an intrusive form of uh, therapy. Uh, and that kind of intrusive therapy, we can, if we, if we do nothing more than classify people according to body types, we can be sure that it will be good for the kapha type because it will activate things, it will push them around. But it's something that will have to be used with caution, with care, in the pitta or vata type, because those individuals all already have an overstimulated. The vata person is much more sensitive to pain than the other types are. The pitta person is much more sensitive to inflammation than the other types are. So whether it's rothing or uh, uh, homeopath homeopathy or wherever, whatever it might be, if you're trying to purify someone, you always have to think of bala. In Ayurveda, we, said we use the word bala for strength. You have to think about the strength of the patient versus the strength of the disease. If the imbalance in the individual is very strong, you have to be very, very cautious about purifying the person. You want to be very much more, uh, you want to emphasize much more strengthen the in, strengthening the individual and attenuating the disease up to the point where the individual becomes stronger than the disease, then you can purify. So we don't want to necessarily try to stimulate uh, a bunch of responses on the part of the body unless we're sure that the body is going to be in a position to digest those responses. Everything in Ayurveda is a matter of digestion. 
So what you take into yourself, what is done to you, are things that you have to digest. If you digest them well, they give you good effects. If you don't digest them well, even if it's the best possible stuff in the universe, it won't have any positive result on you.